So we are now in chapter two. We've um, we covered the introduction of the book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, in chapter one. Uh, now we're in chapter two, uh, which is in, presented in two parts. Uh, God willing, I'll be able to cover part one today on you know, snakes and dragons between the Bible's bookends. So from Genesis to Revelation, uh, throughout Scripture, what, what's it? What's going on with this theme? And in particular, we'll be focusing on how uh, the snake in the Bible, um, who epitomizes Satan, um, as he uses his two primary schemes, you know, to deceive and to devour. Those, again, are his primary strategies in attacking not only Christians, but mankind in general. We know our enemy is powerful. Uh, he's restless in his pursuit of God's people. But his doom is sure. In our days of victory, they have already begun. These are blessed truths that we live by. Now, in this chapter that we're going to be covering by, again, Andrew Nestle is the author. We're going to explore how great this, this empowerful, this enemy of God's is, but how much greater God is. It almost seems giving the, the devil too much credit to even give him the label of God's enemy. You know, since he can only do that which God permits, we usually when we think of enemies, we think of someone who um, is as powerful as we are, can, um, could defeat us possibly. God's enemy cannot do that. Um, God is sovereign. He even, as we know, he... He even uses these schemes of the devil to accomplish um, his own good purposes. You know, the devil's no threat to God, not even in the least. But, but Scripture clearly identifies this snake as God's enemy. Now, he hates God, and he hates God's people. And God hates him and, and the wicked, the, the devil's people. So it is, it's quite appropriate in the final analysis to call this snake God's enemy. And by extension of our connection to God, this snake is our greatest enemy. Well, in the Bible, uh, snakes and, and serpents, they generally, they generally symbolize something that is quite profound. And so we're going to walk through a number of those things. Again, the focus being on that serpent. Sometimes serpents occasionally, uh, sim occasionally symbolize something that's good. And we have this little symbol here up on the screen. Um, it's a symbol that you probably noticed before, given used by em emergency medical services. It's called the Star of Life. The Star of Life um, has that that snake wrapped around what's called the, the staff of Aslip, Aslipius. I think I pronounced that right. Aslipius. A Greek god, of course, right? A Greek god associated with healing and medicine. 
That's the star of life. Well, we see that and we think, all right, that's a good thing, especially if we need the people that are wearing that little emblem there. Um, our first example of a serpent-like creature being good is found in Genesis 1.21. I'll read that real quick. It says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so that's our first encounter here with those great sea creatures, the serpents of the sea by extension. Well, our author here, Nasily, he points out that the Canaanites, you know, they had their own creation myth. Many of them did, right? They all, those ancient peoples had their own creation myths. Well, the Canaanites uh, had their myth that the gods had to defeat the already existing sea monsters before they could create the world. Now, they certainly knew those, these monsters existed at some time anyways. But we know in actuality God created these sea monsters. And when he did it, it was good. So let's look at some passages here on how sp Scripture speaks to God's very creative power. Um, in Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26, it says, O Lord, how manifold are your works! I, in wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. The Leviathan existed, this great sea serpent. Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8 say, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. They're under his command. As they do what they are created to do, they bring glory to God. Now, it's interesting to note that when, when Jacob goes and he blesses his sons near the end of his life. He had this to say about Dan. Maybe you will recall this. It's up on the screen. He said, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Nasally. Uh, this author here, he describes here that what we have, of course, is a small animal, a viper, a snake, able to terrify a large animal, these, these horses, these war horses even. Um, well, Dan, the tribe of Dan, being a, a, is described here as being a shrewd viper. Uh, he did end up defeating a much larger force, um, with a measure of shrewdness. You can read that about that in Judges chapter 18. It describes where Dan, this tribe, again, they very stealthily came upon, as Scripture des describes, uh, an unsuspecting people. Uh, they defeated the people of Laish. So there is an example of that particular um, 
pronouncement of, of, of Jacob's coming true. But there's another example, okay? Well, shrewdness and wisdom, we know, is attributed to the serpent in Scripture. Like we have in Proverbs chapter 30, uh, the, the way of the serpent on a rock, observing that serpent on a rock, telling his disciples to, to observe this, Christ even does, you know, as they go out and, and do ministry. They are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, Christ tells them in that work. And why? Why be as wise as a serpent? Well, the devil's scheming. We need to be wise about it. Now, this type of shrewdness uh, that's attributed to serpents is to be taken in a positive manner. Sure, a person can be shrewd and evil in those devices at the same time, but that's, of course, not the, the positive spin that we're, we should be taking here, certainly not what Christ was telling his, his disciples to do as they go out and spread the gospel. Another example in Scripture where we see, all right, the, again, the occasional symbol of the snake here being something that is portrayed as good, we Let's remember what Aaron's staff did. You know, when Moses and Aaron encountered Pharaoh and his magicians, read about that in Exodus chapter 7. You know, Pharaoh asked for proof that what they were saying, that their orders and that their mission was from God. He wanted proof for it. So obeying what God had earlier commanded Moses because he knew what Pharaoh was going to do and say, Aaron threw down his staff. And what did it do? It turned into, it turned into a serpent. Of course, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing, Scripture tells us, by their secret arts. But God had Aaron's staff swallow up the staffs of the magicians. Again, you know, this scene vividly portrays God's sovereignty over everything, over evil. Of course, he did that a number of times um, as the plagues were dealt on Egypt. You know, God uses the staff turned to serpent to show his power over creation and over his enemies, our enemies. Another one. Stephen and I were talking about it this morning, actually. In Numbers chapter 21, we have the account of the bronze serpent. Remember that? In the wilderness, Israel had, again, they had gone rogue, um, grumbling against God and against God's servant. And so to chastise them for their sin, what does God do? He, he sends fiery serpents in their midst biting the people so that they died. That's what scripture says, so that they died. Well, the people went to Moses again, after grumbling, to plead to God for their sake, asking Moses to intervene. Well, so the Lord instructed Moses, he said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This serpent raised up on a pole. Well, later on, much later on in the Gospel of John, Christ is, is speaking. He's talking to Nicodemus. 
He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus likens the restoration of the people's physical bodies in that time in the wilderness being bitten by those fiery serpents. He likens their physical restoration of looking at that bronze serpent believing what God had instructed them through Moses that it would heal them. Looking upon it in, in faith. Christ is using this analogy that in the same way uh, looking at Christ lifted up. Looking on him in faith. As he took upon our sin. One of the things that Aaron, uh, Steve and I were talking about is you know, what, the, some of the implications people have taken upon what this bronze serpent means um, there are different positions but at the very least it does portray exactly what Christ is saying here about you know they were to look upon this thing in faith that it would heal them that we would also look upon Christ in the same way as we would have eternal healing well Scripture does have the marginally occasional good thing to say about serpents. It does. But mostly, by far, as negative things to say. So let's, let's go through some of these. You know, they, they, they typically symbolize evil. Of course, we have the incident of the Garden of Eden, which, um, you know, how Satan either possessed or took the form of a serpent to deceive Eve. Uh, that's our first instance of scripture where uh, of evil that the serpent symbolizes. Uh, for ancient Israel, serpents were um, in the unclean category, as they were called out in the law. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 41 through 43, let's read this. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever as many feet and swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat for they are detestable you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them because snakes because serpents noted in, in scripture tend to be of the venomous kind they are considered deadly and, and dangerous Generally, Job chapter 20 speaks of how the wicked will be sickened by the venom of the cobra in their stomach. As Job talks about the wicked people, they will, as Job puts it, suck the poison of the cobras and the tongue of a viper will kill them. You know, their own evil plans coming upon their own heads, if you will. Psalm 58 speaks of the wicked having the venom of a serpent there or the resolve of the adder an adder is a snake um, it's a general term for various snakes in the viper family so again attributing the wicked as having the venom of a serpent <coughs> scripture speaks of how wine can bite like a serpent and sting like an adder. 
Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, and Amos, they speak of the serpent's bite basically representing misfortune. The serpents, they're scary. I don't know how many people in here, but I would imagine most people in here are afraid of snakes. Not everyone, but most people generally are afraid of snakes. Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? You know, clearly nobody would want to do that. He uses that as an analogy. You know, we can also re- remember that story of, of Paul's that he experienced on the Isle of Malta. Um, the way the people there, those indigenous peoples, reacted when he reached into that bundle of sticks, the fire was, and a viper comes out and bites him. You know, they just stand around waiting to see what's going to happen, waiting to see that, you know, him die, frankly. Um, well, they waited around, and he never did. He didn't fall. He didn't die. So they, what? They thought him to be a god because he withstood the venom of the treacherous snake. That's another example we see in Scripture. Going uh, to Revelation, even, the sixth trumpet in Revelation includes beings whose tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound Again, serpents in the Bible usually symbolize evil. This picture we have in Revelation of the people of the devil um, attacking the people of God. Serpents usually symbolize evil. Well, serpents distinctly symbolize God's enemies. Uh, Satan and his offspring. Uh, serpents, they, um, they, they represent and um, evil in general throughout the Bible, his enemies of God, our enemies. Uh, the author here, Nasily, he calls out four particular passages that we're going to look through across both testaments of the Bible where we can see this truth being clearly displayed. So the first one here is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It reads, for, for their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. So even even the good things of the earth, like the vine, even the good things of the earth, turn out to be destructive to God's enemies. God is not looking, extending grace to them. Not special grace. For with God's people, we have a rock that is our refuge. God's people, even these better things of the world, have a good purpose for us. The good things of the world will be used against the wicked, but even the bad things of the of this world will be ultimately for our good. That's because God's in control and He is our rock. Psalm ninety-one, verses eleven through thirteen: 
for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Is this passage familiar to anyone? See where else we see this in, in scripture come up? Just any ideas? What's that? That's right. Yeah. It's very interesting um, enough how Satan, in that temptation, he quotes part of this, this passage here when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. Notice how the devil did not finish his quotation. Um, to include verse 13. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. No, he stopped before that. So, that wily devil. All right, another one. Micah chapter 7. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So the nations of the earth will be reduced to bear the shame of the same punishment that the ancient serpent himself suffered. You know, licking the dust. You know, become a crawling thing themselves. Now, over to the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy. Now, who are these 72? Christ had turned at earlier in this past in this chapter, had sent out 72 to go out into um, a tale of the kingdom of God that's come upon them. So here we are in, in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. For a, a time, when the Lord was still with them, his disciples had extraordinary power over God's enemies. And over um, the creatures, even, in some ways. They weren't allowed to hurt his followers as they went out and spread the glory of God in the message of repentance to make more true worshipers of God while Christ was with them. And, and so... Um, they got to experience that. But what we can see here really is, again, God's sovereignty over his creation. For his namesake, that his glory would be spread among the nations. All right. So they, these serpents distinctly symbolize God's enemies, Satan and his offspring. Well, the ultimate ser serpent is Satan. He's the ultimate serpent. serpent. Um, so in the final analysis, all signs of deceit 
and destruction and blasphemy and apostasy, they point back to Satan. That, again, that miserable serpent, the accuser of God's people, the father of liars. Satan tempts God's people. That's one of the things he's aiming to do every day, tempt God's people. As we already noted, he tried tempting Christ, the Son of God. He tried to do that. It goes to show how arrogant and blind he can be in his zeal to oppose God, to come against the Son of God. If he was bold enough to try to tempt Christ, we must never, ever let our guard down and keep clinging to Christ. Not letting, not keeping up our guard in our own strength, but clinging to Christ, who, again, is the rock who won't leave us. Now, we already talked about that. Christ was victorious over Satan's schemes. In him, we have victory. Now, so much is the way of that snake he, that he earned that title, the tempter. He earned that title. We see that in the Gospel of Matthew when he tempted Christ. Paul warns the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the husband and wife must be generous with fulfilling marital rights to one another so that the devil would not capitalize on their lack of self-control. He knows our weaknesses. He will try to capitalize on those things. If, if he is not devouring, that snake is deceiving. You know, his schemes, they have the world stumbling around in, in a darkness, and he will fool God's people if he can when they rely on their own strength and their own wisdom. When we rely on our own strength and wisdom, he will fool us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter, 10 verses, or chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Then, later on, chapter 11, same book. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The devil deceives with very evil designs. And these disguises that he has and his people have. 
these snares designed for us. And notice how these, in these passages, like so many others, his intended victims are God's people. We must not be ignorant of his designs, as we've been exhorted to do here. Those designs specifically designed as stumbling blocks for us, unique for you, made to stir up the idols that are in your heart. Those designs for me may not look the same as the designs for you. We have a powerful enemy. But we have a promise from the Lord, the Lord of all creation, that Jesus helps his people when Satan tempts them. Deliver me from evil, we pray. We've been taught to pray. The Lord helps his people. The book of Hebrews in chapters 2 and chapter 4 have wonderfully encouraging news for the struggling saint. It's kind of a long passage here, but it's worth the read. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then, chapter 4 of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is there waiting for us. He is there waiting for us. A prayer away. Jesus became human to decisively defeat the snake and save his people. To kill that beast and rescue the girl. Jesus can help his people when Satan tempts them. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to empathize with us. What a mighty God we serve. God is sovereign also over Leviathan. Here is this the sea monster introduced to the scripture again. In chapter 22, um, the author here, he utilizes the book of Job and God's sovereignty over Leviathan, that monster serpent of the sea. Well, particularly, we find in Job chapter 41, which, nastily, he notes, is the longest passage in the Bible about a monstrous serpent 
Now, we read of how truly mighty and powerful is this beast that God created, the Leviathan. You know, nothing can stand before it at all. Describing in that passage in Job 41 how his armor, the scales, if you will, his armor is like a row of shields. And he sneezes um, that are a flash forth of light. You know, out of his mouth, out of this mouth go flaming torches, is how it's described in Job 41. You know, as you read the book of Job, what does he want of God? In many, in these many of discourses that we read in, in Job, he wants to question. He wants to, in fact, interrogate God for the suffering that he's experienced. He wants to ease, even questioning the right of God to do what he wills. And he even questions the integrity of God's will. He doesn't sin with his lips. He doesn't curse God. But he questions God's integrity here. Eventually, God does come to Job, doesn't he? He comes out of the whirlwind, it says. And he answers none of Job's questions. He doesn't answer any of his questions. He doesn't have to answer Job's questions. Uh, Job has no right to interrogate God and question his wisdom or his counsel as if Job knows better than God. Nastily, he writes, um, he writes, um, Quote, the exchange between God and Job reveals that in Job's eyes, number one, God is too small. And number two, that Job is too large. God is not obligated to give Job anything, not even answers to his questions. So God changes the subject. He doesn't answer his questions. That's why what I have up here is uh, something a, a Christian journalist humorously wrote as he, in his own way, symbolizes Job. He says, Job, in a nutshell, is Job asking why. And his friends saying, well, you sinned. Job saying, no, I didn't. And then God just saying, look at the cool animals. Changing the subject. He describes his creative power and his sovereignty over all things. Even the beast, Leviathan. Christopher Ash very good author, pastor. Good stuff, he writes. He commented on the book of Job, and he said, quote, I am meant to be humbled by supernatural evil so that, so that I know, deeply know, that it is too strong for me, that I cannot resist it on my own. This God who knows how to use supernatural evil to serve his purposes of ultimate good, can and will use the darkest invasions into my own life for his definite and invincible plans for my good in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And what a Savior indeed he is that we have. In the end, he will slay the dragon. Isaiah writes, 
In chapter 27, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Don't be confused the way scripture at times will use this a symbol, an animal of some sort in a way that seems positive and in another way later on that's negative. He does that. Scripture does that. The Lord does that in Scripture. He does that with the lion at times. The sword of the Lord, it's hard, it's great, it's strong. No defenses like a row of shields for scales, such as the Leviathan possesses. No fiery sneezings will be able to do anything against God when he determines it is time to slay the dragon. That ancient serpent. God will sovereignly destroy the most powerful, evil monster in the universe. It will be nothing for him to do so. What a glorious moment that will be. Paul promises that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Some glorious day, serpents will no longer be deadly. Writing about the new Jerusalem, Isaiah says in chapter 11, says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as he, as the waters cover the sea. As a result of God slaying the serpent in the future, serpents will no longer be deadly to humans. God will, in a sense, he will defang the serpent. Poisonous serpents. Right now, they're deadly. But God will transform them so that they will become harmless. It's, it's his prerogative to do so. Even the helpless toddler will be able to play with serpents without any danger. Now, serpents will no longer harm people. God's people will be safe and secure. The author here in chapter 2, he writes, he says, quote, It's likely that the deadly animals in these passages metaphorically symbolize anything that makes God's people feel unsafe and insecure, including poisonous serpents. In other words, in this fallen world, all sorts of predators may terrorize God's people, whether actual animals or people who oppose God and oppose God's people. But when God creates the new heaven, the new earth, as we read in Isaiah 65, he will remove all the dangerous creatures 
with the result that they can no longer harm God's people. You will slay the dragon. We'll have a new city of God where all those harmful things are no longer harmful. It's rare for snakes, as we learn again in this chapter. It's rare for them to symbolize anything good. They usually symbolize what is evil, what is poisonous and deadly. And Satan is the ultimate serpent. And we'll find in the next chapter how it explores how the Bible depicts Satan's offspring as serpents.